We're taking these weeks in December right now to look at one of the most glorious and precious truths in all the Bible. One of the most glorious and precious truths in all the Bible. And it's one of these doctrines, get this, I try to say this on a regular basis so that you would know because I don't think you hear this from the media in our world. This is one of the doctrines that categorically sets Christianity aside as being radically different than every other religion. This doctrine that we're looking at this month is the engine that drives Christianity. And it's the fuel that feeds this good news of the hope of the gospel that Christianity, listen to me, is not a list of what you need to do to try to get right with God. Every other religion, if you'll scratch a little bit, and you don't have to scratch hard and scratch for long, if you'll scratch a little bit and get below the surface, it almost always boils down to their particular list of what you need to do to get right with God, what you need to do to get right with God. So you could put almost every other religion and sect and ism over in the self-helps department, self-help section at Barnes and Noble. You know, there's a religion section. I think most of it could be shifted entirely to the self-help section because it's what it is. We'll tell you what you need to do to get right with God. Here, do this, follow this. It's a system, it's a list. Christianity, get this if you've gotten some confused somewhere along the way. Christianity is all about what God has already done for us once and for all to reach down to us. And that is radically different. Don't let the media and our world deceive you and confuse you. Oh, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, it's all the same. Those are all just different flavors of the same ice cream company. There could not be a more radical difference at the heart of Christianity than there is. It's God come down to us and doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. That's the God we have. That's the message we have. And that's the heart and hope of Christianity. You heard it here first. Clear up some of the misunderstandings. Let the fog be lifted. That is that. Now, some of it we deserve. We've, the, the church, not this church by God's grace, but the church, the church of Jesus Christ so often has gotten off on we don't smoke and we don't dip and we don't dance. We don't do movies. We don't play cards. We do all that here. And not all of us, but I do. Well, I don't smoke and I don't dip, and, but I do some of that. And all of a sudden it's like, you've missed the main thing. The main thing gets clouded by all this other stuff. And December is a chance to bring it back, to bring it back, to bring it back to the heart of what is this really all about. And so we want to center our thoughts around this great doctrine of the incarnation, that God took on flesh. And this doctrine, this doctrine is captured by one of the greatest names of Jesus Christ. It's got a lot of names in the Bible. Emmanuel, God with us. And that word gets sung on the radio a lot this time of year by people that I find myself thinking, do they have any idea what they're even saying and singing? No, they don't. And this word, gallons of ink, gets spilt and splash, splashing this word across greeting cards and Christmas, Christmas trinkets. But I gotta ask you, do you know all that is captured in this one word, Emmanuel, when you see it and when you sing it and when you say it? That's what I want us to dig down into today. So turn with me in your Bible 
And I hope you got a Bible with you or an app in your lap and you know how to use it and get to the scriptures. Bible or some way to see scripture for yourself, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and I believe this chapter, John chapter 1, is the Cadillac or Lexus. I date myself. Cadillac was the deal way back when I was a boy. Probably Lexus or something else today. BMW. This, Lexus, okay. (laughs) This chapter is the Lexus of all incarnation references in the Bible. It's the best. It's the best. There's other places that talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, but this is where we get the most detail of what does it mean, God with us. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way to 18, so buckle your seatbelts and hang on. It's good stuff. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, say it, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own And his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Who were born. He's about to tell you. How do you get born again? How does this happen? How do you get saved? Make sure you understand. Who were born not of blood. So you don't inherit it through your mom and dad. It's not biological. It's not ancestry. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of man. You can't just will yourself into this. Nor of the will of the flesh. Someone else can't do it for you. You can't ride on the coattails of anybody else's decision. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Three words. Say it. But of God. But of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The word there, literally in the Greek, it's charis anti charis. Grace in place of grace. What that means is it never ends. Grace and, it, and you think you got all you're going to get? More grace. Grace on top of grace, pot on top of grace, pot on top of grace. God 
gives grace with no expiration date, no limits, unending grace. And it comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. He who is in the bosom of the Father, the only begotten Son, he has declared him. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you in this 40 minutes that remains, would you declare your son Jesus Christ to us? Would you blow off all, all the fog that has enveloped Christmas? Lord, with all the noise and the bells and the whistles and the mall and the coupons and the specials, and the frazzled nerves and the hectic pace and the, and, and, and the rawness of Christmas as we rush and the traffic and the stoplights and the honking and the, and the desperation of the list not being done and the special cakes that have to be done and the stockings that are hung and the Christmas tree and the lights and all of it that causes us to end this month weary, frazzled, and still unaware of what you have done in these 40 minutes would you press pause on all that other and show us your son show us your gift I pray in Jesus name amen oh listen to me if you don't get anything else from this message if you're going to stop listening in about 30 seconds from now I want you to get this, this month is not about happy holidays, it's not about celebrating family, and it's certainly not about jolly old St. Nicholas. This month was meant to be all about the staggering implications of God with us. God with us. So I want you to scoot up closer to me as we unwrap this incredible gift of what does it mean, Emmanuel, God with us? What has God done? How did he do this? How does this affect my life? And to do this, I'm gonna do this a little differently. I'm gonna start in verse 18 and work our ways backwards through this passage. We're gonna start in verse 18 because here's what, here's what I want you to understand. We're going to move, as we start in verse 18, we're going to move from a God that you can't even see. That's what verse 18 says, but no one has seen God. We're going to move from a God that you can't even see to a God who reveals himself to us in all of his glory and then takes it another mind-blowing step further in that he gives himself to us and adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. I believe you're gonna see, I wanna show you from verse 18 backwards, I wanna show you five steps that I believe can lead you out of darkness into the very presence of God. Out of ignorance of God into the family of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and there is no other way. 
You can move from ignorance of God into the very family of God. But it only happens through the Son of God, Jesus. Put your finger on verse 18. We'll start there. In verse 18, no one. Verse 18, notice verse 18 shows us the helpless position that we all start off in. All of us. No one has seen God at any time. That's our starting point, our natural starting point from birth. No one has seen God at any time. You're not going to get a hold of God and stick him under a microscope or get him into the laboratory and figure him out and quantify him and measure him and prove him and document him. You can't do it. No one has ever seen God. God has it seen God at any time and there's not a new problem long as there have been people this has been the deal and so for that reason the history of mankind is littered with men and women who have mocked and made fun of the very notion of God because for them their world is no bigger than what you can see and taste and touch and measure and quantify but don't be intimidated I'm not intimidated Because that same person who says they live and die on the hill of what can I see, what can I taste, what can I touch, what can I measure, what can I quantify, has a heart and a soul that cries out for more than this world can ever offer. Doesn't matter how rich you are, how educated you are, color your skin, what part of the country or the world you grew up in, what your experience has been, what your privileges have been, what your pain has been. It doesn't matter. Your heart beats and says there is more and I want more and this world is not enough. No matter what's coming out of your lips, you have that kind of heart because there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being and nothing you'll ever grab hold of in this world ever ever and here's the lie we always think I just don't have enough of the right stuff and that's why I feel so dissatisfied and uneasy and it's a lie nothing you'll ever grab hold of in this world and try to stuff down in there will ever perfectly fit it or fill it ever only God and so we keep making fools of ourselves by denying what we can't see because we can't see it we deny it because we can't see it we mock it because we can't see it we attack it so the Psalm 14 one says the fool has said in his heart there is no God listen to me despite despite education Richard Dawkins is a fool I don't hate him my heart breaks for him. I pray for him. I love him. But the Bible calls him a fool. He's a fool when he writes books like The God Delusion and says there is no God. Peter Singer is a fool while he holds the chair of bioethics at Princeton and says there is no God. Carl Sagan was a fool as he did all his television programming and books and said there is no God and said you know, billions and billions and billions of years and all this just Christopher Hitchens was a fool when he wrote, God is not great. And said, there's no God, there's no God, there's no God. And some of these men 
Sagan, and Hitchens have now died and gone on to find out just how wrong they were. But this is nothing new, folks. Men and women have been mocking throughout the history of mankind because we can't see God. Back in 1961, the very first human being to fly into space was the Soviet cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. And he voiced what so many human beings are thinking still today when he announced from his little spacecraft hovering just outside of the Earth's, you know, whatever, I don't see any God out here. He suffered with what we all suffer with. We can't see God. And so verse 18, verse 18 paints the problem for us in six blunt, bold words. No one has ever seen God. And so you say, well, then, Brad, how can I know God? How am I going to know God? But let me back up a minute. Have you ever seen love? Can you take love and put it in a test tube and prove I, I love her? Oh, yeah? Lay that out on the table and let's, let's, let's measure that. Is love real? That was weak. What, are you a room full of haters? Huh? You wearing swastikas or what? Is love real? Gee, where's the ho, ho, ho? You really have been frazzled. You say, I don't know if love's real. I've been at the mall all week. I don't see it there. Let me help you. Yes, love is real, but we can't measure it. Is God real? Yes. yes. Moving forward. <laughs> How can we know God? Glad you asked. Verse 17 begins to move us in that direction. That's the second step I want you to see. No one can see God, but look at verse 17. God made the first move towards us. Us. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through our Lord Jesus Christ. See this incredible good news about God? God, holy, righteous God, being reconciled, made right with sinful people like you and me is not all about how hard we work to find God, to get God, to know God. Uh-uh. It's about how committed God has been from the very beginning to reveal himself to us, to move towards us, to go after us. He's a seeking, saving, compassionate, loving God or there would be no hope for any of us. Don't believe me? Keep your place in John 1 because we're not done there. There's great good stuff yet to come. Keep your place in John 1 but flip over to Romans 1. God has been moving towards us. God has been revealing himself to us. That's why there's any hope for us. You can't see God, but it's not that we've done such a good job finding him. He's been moving towards us. Romans 1. Look at what it says has been going on between human beings and God from the very beginning. Here's the relationship between human beings and God from the very beginning. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now pause right there and look at me. Stephen Hawking, Daniel Dennett, 
P.Z. Meyer and all the new names of whoever, whoever the hot new atheists are. And there's some hot ones. I googled top 25 atheists today. Saw names that I didn't know. P.Z. Meyer's got this amazing website and just saw oh, he's it. Some of these names I just named are touring and being paid $50,000 a speech to attack God in front of a crowd and be paid $50,000 for doing it. But here's what the Bible says. Daniel Dennett, Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan, Christopher Hitchens, P.Z. Meyer, put anybody you want to on that list. Here's what these people are doing. They are suppressing the truth of what they know about God even while they say there is no God and try to prove there is no God. Look at it in Romans 1 again, verse 18. Who suppress the truth. Picture this. The word suppress means it's there and you see it and you know it, but you don't want to see it and you don't want to know it. You push it down. You push it down. You swat it away. You bat it away. You turn your back. No, 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 no. It was interesting. I read an article by by uh, Francis Crick, he was the co-discoverer of the DNA. Can you imagine working for years on that and seeing the, the amazing intricacy of the DNA strand and still fighting hard to say there's no God? And literally, I read this article where he said, the scientist must constantly keep in mind every day while he is doing these things he does that scoots him up so close to amazing complexity that screams intelligent, complex, designer God, that there is no God. He literally said that. They will, you will have to keep in mind every day. So it's almost like he's saying, get your briefcase, get your little bag lunch, and go to work. Now, as you head into the lab, make sure you say to yourself again, now there is no God. Regardless of what I see today, there is no God. I'm gonna be blown away today by some things that are gonna look like there's a God, but there is no God. Whoa, 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 that sure looks like there must be a God, but there's not a God. Thank you for helping me, Francis. I gotta say that every day. There is no God, but there is no God. Man, that sure seems like there must be God. Boom, that does too, but okay, here we go who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And you say, well, how, how do they know there's a God who suppressed the truth by their wickedness? For what, keep reading, verse 18, or verse 19, because what may be known about God is fuzzy, barely, barely, I can, I can barely make out the concept that there's a God. What may be known about God is, say it, plain to them. Say, Brad, how do you know it's plain to them? Keep reading. Because God has made it plain to them. You say, Brad, how did God make it plain to them? Keep reading. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. So now look at me a minute. Romans 1 is confirming what we see in John 1.18. Can you see God? No. His invisible qualities, but get this. The fact that you can't see God does not mean you cannot see all that God is doing and his handiwork and extension of God. Since his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been, how seen? Look at it. Clearly seen, being understood by what has been made. Mountains, oceans, astronomy, rivers, babies, biology, chemistry, music, 
higher level mathematics, justice, truth, all these things in our world scream to us, there's a God, there's a God, there's a God, so that, look at the very last phrase of verse 20, so that men are what? Say it again. Will P.Z. Meyer, Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking stand before God and say, but I just, you didn't give me enough to go on. I just didn't have enough. I just didn't have enough. I just didn't have enough. I needed more. Will they be able to say that? Because what they had was enough. And what did they do with what they had? So here's the only question I have for you. Not, is there a God? Do you want there to be a God? Oh. See, what drives the human heart on this is that, oh, if there's a God, then that's going to impinge and affect and impact my morals, who I sleep with, what I do with my body, how I use my money, what I think about life, what I live for, my priorities, my purposes. And guess what? I want to be God. I want to call the shots in my life. I want to do what I want. I want to be autonomous. I don't want there to be a God. And so I work hard to prove that there isn't. All the while, my heart beats, there's a God. There's a God. And I'm, I'm exposed to evidence of that God regularly, regularly. See, here's the deal. If we had more time, and we don't. Romans 1 shows us that creation tells you there's a God. There's God. There's a God. Since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities and divine nature has been clearly seen. If we went on to Romans 2, you'd see that he says in Romans 2, conscience tells you there's a God. He gave you creation. He gave you a conscience, unlike an armadillo. I always say antique or aardvark. I'm going to say a different creature. Unlike the armadillo, you've got a conscience that thinks in terms of right and wrong. You don't even have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to Sunday school. You're born that way. You've got this sense of justice and right and wrong, and armadillos don't. They just get hit by cars and lay there and get baked in the sun. <laughs> Same way with possums. Creation tells you there's a God. Your own conscience tells you there's a God. And then Christ reveals there's a God. Creation, conscience, but the apex of God's revelation to us so you wouldn't have to keep guessing. Well, creation tells me some, there's someone powerful, complex, beautiful, wonderful, but what would he be like? What would he be like? You don't have to be in the dark about what God is like. Just like today, we don't have to wonder, is a woman eight weeks pregnant? Is a woman so many months pregnant? We've got sonograms and ultrasounds, and it's amazing today, the clarity of what is going on in the womb. Folks, you don't have to wonder what God is like. It's better than a sonogram or an ultrasound. He took on flesh and came in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know God? Look to Christ. You want to listen to God? Listen to Christ. Creation, conscience, Jesus Christ. God took the first step towards us in sending his son. Christ is God's greatest word to us about himself. That's why Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three, tells us God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So God has been speaking from the very beginning 
revealing himself to us. But listen to what he says. Has in these last days. Who's living in the last days? Raise your hand. You are. News alert. You are in the last days. Who Has in these last days spoken to us. How? By his son. Through his son. You can't see God on your own, but God's made the first move towards us. And how did he do that? Well, that's step number three. By becoming one of us. Wow. Wow. See, that's an amazing step because it's it's such a big step down for God. He stepped into our cesspool of sin and mess and stink and confusion while never ceasing to be God. Oh my goodness. Wow. Now you think about this. The reason I'm pressing this, I think it's too easy for us to think, oh, baby in the manger and it's so sanitized and Americanized and precious and animals are lowing sweetly. No, it was a, it was a stable. It smelled like big piles of cow poop. <laughs> Donkeys were fluctuating through the night. It was foul. Foul. There was sour, urine-soaked straw. Ladies, the birthing rooms we have today at the hospitals, picture a stable, cold, smelly, and you get to give birth there. God arrived in our world and chose to arrive there instead of a palace. And our God in flesh was laid by his mother in a feeding trough. He didn't do these things for you to be struck by preciousness. He did this for you to be struck by the amazing earthiness of his willingness to come right into your mess and your world that so many times we think oh if I could just get this right and this right and this wasn't so he came right into the mess and that's still the God he is he'll meet you right in your mess he doesn't need you to clean it all up first and then come to him he's coming to you now that's how he arrived and it's still the God that we have he's coming to you now in your stink in your mess He became one of us. It was a a demotion of cosmic, staggering proportions. We get get bent out of shape over the slightest demotion, don't we? If someone doesn't treat you exactly how you think they should have treated you based on who I am and, and their position and my position. God left the glories of heaven, the God who spoke all into being and sustains it arrived was demoted to arrive as a baby in a stable to a teenage girl look at it in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and in verse 1 we already saw you got to connect verse 14 to verse 1 the word was with God and the word what was God so verse 1 tells us the word is God and verse 14 says the word became flesh so God became flesh became a human God became human 
That's what God did for us. That's the extent. See, this is a stunning illustration. Christmas is a stunning illustration of the extent to which God went to reach us, to come to us. To... No other religion is like this. Islam has Jesus as just a major prophet, but he's not the son of God. Hinduism has Jesus as just one of many gods. This is the only religion that says our God, God, took on flesh and came here all the way to meet you and to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Jesus was fully human, fully God, but it gets even better than that. Fully human, fully God, and then he chose to mix it up with us, to get his hands dirty with us, to get right up close against us. Because verse 14 tells us, look at it again. The word became flesh and Say it. Dwelt among us. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, and I hope you don't, circle dwelt, underline it, highlight it. If you're using an app, figure the tools out and do something weird with that word. Make it sparkle. Because here's the deal. I love it. If you've been coming for a while, you're, you're gonna know this already, I hope, but I, I'm gonna tell you again. That word dwelt is the Greek word that means to pitch your tent among. Think about this a minute. God could have taken on flesh and became the God-man, right? But arrived and said, I'm living in a palace. I'm, I'm living in a certain part of the world with the best people. I'm not just going to get around common people. No, no, no. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent right in the middle of us. I cannot think of any more earthly earthly concept and picture than tent camping, right? I know my hatred for camping is renowned. But I must confess something here. Just like I've said terrible things about cats in the past and now I love them. If you didn't know that, I do. I love cats. <laughs> but here's the deal on camping. With all the hatred that I've expressed on camping, I actually do have one or two fond memories in the midst of all that mess. Every now and then when it actually goes well, and it did, I think once, once, and I remember it. Red River Gorge, Steve Barnett, guy in our church used to play in these father-son campouts. And even though I hate camping, I am a good dad. So I would go with my boys. I would go. Oh, it was just, oh. I would go. And it would usually just torrential downpour. We're hovered under a blue tarp. Poles are collapsing. Food is awful. Boys are crying. People are hurt. Someone's been stabbed. And we all just... We wrap it up wet in your car and now you drive home. You spend another day laying it out in the driveway saying, God, what was I thinking? I'm so exhausted. I got to get through another work week for another weekend to actually recover from this disastrous, awful time we spent. But this one time in Red River Gorge, we had this spot right where two little creeks came together. Now, there's still no running water and ooh, all the awfulness of that. But two little creeks came together. Someone already had a rope Swing from this tree where you swing out over this muddy pond and drop down in there. And, and the dads are sitting by the fire. I do like that. If I could just go back inside somewhere nice and sleep. But sitting by the fire. And there is a familiarity, right? What is it you like about camping? I hope it's not that you like being that dirty. But it's just, it's, you're disconnected from so much that distracts you. And you just sit. Who sits by a fire like that, right? TV's not on. Radio's not on. Just, and you're talking. And you're hanging out. 
It was that kind of time. It was just the perfect spot and it's not raining. And, and boys, boys ran naked. Doesn't get any better than that. We didn't. The dads, I mean, there was no moms there. So this was wonderful. You know, we're just talking along like eight, guy, eight dads. And all of a sudden, you know, in the darkness with the flickering fire, I thought, oh, he's naked. And uh, pretty soon we're like, a couple of them are naked. No, they're all naked. Swinging naked off this rope in the dark, dropping into water. It doesn't get any better than that, right? I mean, we actually took pictures of all of them. Probably couldn't do this today, sadly, because of all the running naked down the creek bed with sticks. Because Braveheart was kind of a new movie then. And they all ran roaring naked in this shallow creek towards us. And we was like, oh, manly, manly. So, tent camping, familiarity. See, think about this. If someone moves into the neighborhood... That's, that's enough to say, wow, they're gonna live in our neighborhood on our level? But someone can move into the neighborhood, build a palace with big walls, with broken glass fixed all on the top, and it would still communicate something huge, right? You're not gonna get close to me. I'm in the hood, but not really. I'm here, but not here. I'm here, but there's still a big difference. Never lose sight of the fact there's you, and there's me, then there's you, and there's me. Don't confuse those two things. But if you move into my neighborhood with canvas and poles and you pitch a tent in my backyard, you're probably gonna be using my bathroom and shower, eating at my table and spending a lot of time in my presence. That's what God did for us. Folks, Jesus was never accused. Read the Gospels. He was never criticized for being arrogant or aloof or detached. What did he get criticized for? For hanging out with, spending time with the wrong kind of people, with prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors and all the wrong people. He mixed it up with them. He spent time with them. He loved them and they knew it. That's our God. He made the first move towards us by becoming one of us. Took on flesh and got right up against our mess. Dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. And that leads to the fourth step I want you to see. God became one of us so that you could see what he's like. That you could see his glory. Not from a textbook, but... At close range, at close range, what's he like? What's he like? What's he like? Look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and pitched a tent among us and we beheld his glory. He came and became one of us and got right in the midst of us so that you could know what he's like. It's the same thing that's being taught in verse 18. Jump back down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. Jesus is right there close to the father. He knows him. He has declared him. And you know what that word declared? The NIV and ESV says made him known. The word in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament right there is exegeomai. What English word do you think we get from the Greek word exegeomai? Exegesis. Exegete. And that's a word that means to dig down in and to bring out in detail and interpret and explain and proclaim 
what something's like. Jesus interprets and explains and gives you an analysis of what God is like. You don't have to keep saying, wonder what God would be like. Wonder what God would be like. Wonder what God would be like. Look at Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Read of Christ. Listen to Christ. Follow Christ. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared God, has made him known. And, and of everything that he could have made known to us, and it's vast, there's two things the Apostle John chose to highlight. So it's not the only thing that Jesus is full of and shows us about God. But of everything he could have said, he chooses two. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Look at it in verse 14 at the end. Full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the truth that you've been looking for. And get this, it's not a cold, hard, clinical truth. It's a warm, gracious, giving truth that meets you right where you are and gives you what you don't deserve but desperately desire and don't even know it. Grace and truth. It's not a cold, clinical, hard, academic, just truth. Grace and truth. Grace is the fire wrapped around truth that warms it. It's a gracious, giving, moving towards you truth where it gives you what you don't deserve to be forgiven of all your sins and to become a child of God. No condemnation. Because see, you don't deserve it. You desperately desire it. But some of you don't even know that's what you're desiring. You're chasing after sexual exploits or sports extravaganzas or that adding that den on the home or kids or, or grandkids or marriage or climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it may be. Got to get to Europe, got to see parts of the world, whatever it is. Let me help you. When you get it, if you get it, you're going to realize, I didn't do it. Jesus is the truth, grace you've been looking for and desiring and maybe don't even know it because God has put eternity in our hearts and filled us with a longing every single one of you have a longing but we don't even know what it is we're longing for until he gives you eyes to see the breathtaking God in Jesus Christ that's why C.S. Lewis says this if I find in myself a desire I've got this desire this longing this craving if I find in myself a desire in which nothing in this world fully satisfies. Now, get, now, do things in the world satisfy some? Oh, yes. Fully. Nothing in this world fully. You know, you get that new car, it has that new car smell. You drive a little bit. Eh. Everything's that way in this world. Which nothing in this world fully satisfies the most probable explanation for it is that I was made for another world. 
That's why nothing in this world fully satisfies. You weren't made for this world. You were made for another world and you were made for a relationship with your creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. And until you have that, there'll be this, yeah, but, yeah, but. That was good, but. I've always wanted that, now I got it, but, but, but. Jesus is what you're looking for and maybe don't even know it. Lewis goes on to say, the tragedy of the world is that the echo is mistaken for the original shout. When our back is to the breathtaking beauty of God, we cast a shadow on the earth and fall in love with it. But it does not satisfy. The books or the music that we thought the beauty was located in will betray us if we trust them, for they're not the thing itself. And I love this illustration. Whatever in this world delights you, music, friendship, marriage, parenting, working hard, discovery, learning, reading, I I don't know. There's a lot that delights me too. Listen to what he says. All of it, as good as it may get at some point, is just the scent of a flower you have not found. The echo of a tune we've not heard. News from a country we've never yet visited. Isn't that good? It explains a lot. There's goodness here. It's true. First Timothy 6, God says he's given us richly all things to enjoy. Music does satisfy. Friendship satisfies. Work can be satisfying. All kinds of things can be satisfying. But everything in this world, none of it was meant to fully satisfy. It's all meant to be an appetizer and a wake-up call. An appetizer and smelling salts to awaken you to sense where, where, what's the origin of all this? Where is this? Everything in this world is just a shadow and an echo. A shadow and an echo. And you could waste your life trying to get the shadow and capture and amplify the echo. What you're really looking for is the original shout. That shout is Jesus Christ, God in flesh. You say, well, Brad, as the worship team joins me on the stage... Brad, how does this grace that I see in this passage, grace upon grace, piled on top of grace, unending grace, how does this grace become my grace? How does this Savior, this amazing God-man, become my Savior? I want you to fix your eyes on the good news in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Don't look at the team getting on the stage. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You say, Brad, is it as simple as that? What does it mean to receive? I don't have to do anything? It is as simple as that, but let me say, that runs completely contrary to your flesh. To receive Christ, you will have to unpack from your arms Everything in this world you've been clinging to, trying to make much of and saying, this is my life purpose. This is what I live for. You open your arms and you receive Christ and you bow the knee and you say, yes, Lord Jesus. Come into my life. Be the shout. I've been living for echoes and shadows. Be the shout. Come in and satisfy me on a level that I haven't found in any other area of this world. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
Will you receive him today? He's been looking for you. He's been moving towards you. You don't have to clean yourself up first. Will you receive him? Today, he's saying, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you peace. I'll give you joy. I'll give you hope. Come. Our God that we cannot see has been moving towards us throughout all of history. And he's still moving today. He's still calling today. He's still coming today. Father, I pray you'd work right now in the hearts of every single person here. Lord, for anyone that doesn't know Christ, that they would simply turn their eyes to you and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I receive Jesus into my life. I'm gonna stop suppressing the truth. I'm gonna stop chasing shadows and capturing echoes and trying to amplify them. Yes, Lord Jesus, come into my life. And for every believer that has gotten off track and has begun to be distracted and chasing after the same things that the world chases after, bring them back to Christ, oh Lord. Bring them back. Bring them back to the original shout. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.